I want to uh, want you to turn to 1 Corinthians chapter 9, and you understand, I think most of you have been here at least once, that we, on Sunday nights, we work kind of a, kind of a study time. Work off a worksheet, kind of taking notes. One of the problems that student of the scripture has is taking verses of scripture and making them to say what we want them to say. Boy, that's a temptation. It's called eisegesis. It's forcing your concept, your idea upon the scripture, making it say what you want it to say. And so you have to, uh, you know, you, you, you resist that temptation. You have to. Because I suppose that most of us uh, grew up, you know, if, if, if we grew up in a Christian home or in a church setting, we have our own ideas, our own concepts of what we believe about certain theological things, issues. And so we're going to make it say that one way or the other. But the problem with that is that you, 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 it's just not, the only thing wrong with that is wrong. You've got a context you have to work out of or work with. You, has to know, you have to know the setting. And there's certain jargon, I guess, that for want of a better term, it has its own certain, uh, you know, Scripture has its own jargon. That means, that is, it has its own terminology relating to texts. And all that has to be considered. That is true in chapter 9 of 1 Corinthians. Now, 1 Corinthians has its roots in chapter 8. As a matter of fact, I think I mentioned when we were studying chapter 8 that what he was discussing in chapter 8 was so important that he, he, um, he allowed three chapters on that one subject. Now, that's pretty heavy stuff. The Bible, when you, when you determine that the Bible has a short three-minute discussion on the new birth with Nicodemus, and, and you consider that this issue that he's talking about is so important that he devotes three chapters to it, it's got to be pretty important. And what he is discussing in 8, 9, and 10 has to do with the impact one's life has upon another. It's, it's the issue, the extent of our love. Are we living for self alone or are we living for others? And what am I going to do when what, the way I live and the practices of my life affects somebody else or causes them to stumble? That's the issue. The issue is idle meat, not I-D-L-E, but I-D-O-L, idle meat. Let me set the background again. You got this before, but it's been a couple of weeks. Been a lot of football games and soap operas on since then. You've probably forgotten that. Let me set the background. There were all these pagan temples in Corinth, and they went to these pagan temples just like they did to the temple of God, and they made sacrifices there. They brought animal sacrifices. And when the sacrifice was made on the, on the pagan altar, they would take that leftover meat and sell it. They sold it in two places. In the marketplace, they had booths where they sold it. And sometimes they kind of put kind of lean-tos next to the pagan temple and served it as in a restaurant. And so the issue was to some people that to eat that meat offered to idols was a sin. And, and, and sometimes you might, your neighbor might have some of this meat that he bought at the, at the bargain counter and he'd have a block party and everybody come for a barbecue and when you got there and took your first bite, then he told you he bought that idol meat. That's enough to gag some of those Christians there in Corinth. 
And the issue is this, does it compromise me and my religious conviction if I eat idle meat? And so Paul deals with that because the extent of one's love is determined by how much am I willing to sacrifice for someone else. And the statement that Paul makes concerning it all is verse 13, a heavy one. Oh, to God, oh, I wish to God that every Christian could make the same statement, would make the same statement. Therefore, if food causes my brother to stumble, I'll never eat meat again, that I might not cause my brother to stumble. I'll never do it again. Now the person who makes that kind of statement has made a commitment of his life, a deep and, and, and sacrificial commitment. And what is going to be necessary for a person who makes that kind of a commitment is that he's going to have to apply into, in his life discipline and self-control. Discipline. Now, a person who says, I'll never eat meat again if it causes my brother to stumble, has already made a commitment to apply a tremendous amount, rigorous discipline to his life. After one of our services the other night, a young man tarried a while to, to visit with me. And he talked about, we talked about the Christian life and, and he asked a question that everybody asks. You know, it's just common as soap. The question is this, he said, how in the world after you make a decision, he had made a decision in the service that night, he said, I've made these kinds of things before. I wanna know how to make it last, to make it stick. I wanna know how to be able to follow through on it. He said, it seems like I'm always making commitments to Christ that I don't follow through on. Now everybody's looking for an easy answer, for a pat answer, some kind of a vaccination, you know. Would you give me a shot, a vaccination, so it'll stick this time and I'll never uh, fail again. I, I really mean it, I want to do it. That's the cry that came from that man's heart. And it's the cry that many of us have, 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 have voiced. How do you do it? My answer was, to him was a profound answer. I said, I don't know. Boy, that really encouraged him. Hey. I said, I could sit down with you and I, I, we could go over all this stuff and, and we could talk about it. Oh, you know, everything that I'm going to tell you, you've heard before, the only answer I have for you is, there is the desire that's there. He said, you bet, the desire is there. D there, I said, all right, now the next thing is the determination that applies discipline to your life the determination that applies discipline to one's life. Now there's a key word in this passage. The key word is verse 25, is in verse 25, and this is the key word, self-control. It's a double word in the Greek, inkritia. It means inside, in, kritia is the word that means uh, strength. So it's inside strength, inside strength. It means strength that comes from within. Strength not to indulge, 
strength not to act on impulse. It means the mastery of oneself. The mastery of oneself. Now, I know that the New Testament talks about living under the control of the Holy Spirit, but folks, even though the Bible talks about living under the control of the Holy Spirit, that does not exempt man from the mastery of his own life, his own self-control. As a matter of fact, you can't read the New Testament without finding passage after passage after passage that deals with putting off the old and putting on the new and living the mastered life, living, the self, uh, living in self-control as well as in Christ-control. As a matter of fact, you can't live in self-control till Christ takes control. And when he takes control, then you can exercise self-control. There is a key picture. It's the picture of the games. It's also found in verse 25. The Ishmael games. Now he's not talking about dominoes or um, tiddlywinks. He's talking about a struggle. Now let me tell you about these games. They were not the games, the Olympic games that took place in Athens. They were the Isthmian games that took place in Corinth every two years. And these men, it was, it was the, it was the uh, big event for the sports fan. It was everything for the sports fan. Now they had these kinds of things that went on in these games. They had track and field just like in Olympics. They had boxing. They had swimming. And if you won the games, you received a laurel wreath crown. It was the coveted prize of every athlete. Just to receive that laurel wreath crown. Now you got a little more than that, as a matter of fact, if you won the games. Uh, you know, it wasn't that you just got a crown. Listen to what they got if they won the games. They got a lifetime exemption from military service. They got a lifetime exemption from taxes. Now that'll, brother, I mean that's worth fighting for. Uh, a lifetime exemption from taxes. They got a free education from that day forward for them and everyone in their family. And they took a plaque with their name on it and they nailed it on the wall, the city wall of the boy's hometown. You talk about something coveted. They coveted to win the race. It was the prize of a lifetime. Now I want you to watch this because there's something at stake here. You and I saunter into church. You and I saunter through life nonchalantly. We take these matters of Christianity with such uh, uh, nonchalantness and indifference and apathy. Every time I preach, I just want to come out there and just walk out there and get some of you, you know. <laughs> I really do. And just kind of kind of say, arise thou that sleepest, you know. Uh, <laughs> just wake up the dead. And, and we just kind, of, just kind of flippantly look at this matter of the Christian life. Well, it's really no big deal to most of us. 
And so the Apostle Paul is putting into the context of this great coveted desire to win the prize. He's drawing the picture of what every Christian, how every Christian's heart should beat and how high his blood pressure ought to race and run. It ought to be the prize of a lifetime to win this race. Now, here's where some students of the scripture like to practice a little ice Jesus. What he's talking about, say these, is salvation, when salvation. The Apostle Paul turns over in his grave when that's preached like that. I'm sure of it because he never thought, taught that salvation was by works but by grace alone. He's not talking about winning the prize of salvation. He's talking about winning, are you listening, the rewards of the Christian life. The prizes of the Christian life the rewards of the Christian life. And the picture is that of a, of a, of a runner standing before the bema. The bema is the, of the judgment seat of Christ. And just as in the Isthmian games, the emperor would step down from the judgment seat, from the winner stand, and place the crown upon the winner. He's saying, run this race, live this Christian life, so that one day the Lord will step down himself and crown your efforts. There's a lot at stake here. Now you can saunter in and treat this as with apathy and indifference if you please, but if in doing it you lose the prize, you're the loser. And what he's trying to impress upon us is that you cannot go flippantly through the Christian life and expect to be crowned with prize, with a crown, with a prize. You can't do it. It's going to cost you something. Now there's a key command in verse 24. Now watch this. The key command is run in such a way that you may win. Now, there are three things that are involved in that, that statement. One is that you run with purpose. The goal is the, of the Christian life is grasping the prize. Now, here in Corinth, these Corinthian Christians were grasping for their freedom, and they were saying this. Are you seeing how it fits? They were saying, look, I'm free to eat meat if I want to. I'm free to do what I please. I'm, I, I'm the Christian life. I feel no problem with this. But Paul says to run with the purpose not to grasp for your freedom, but to grasp for the reward. And there's a conflict between one's freedom and one's reward. It may be that you might be free to eat meat off of the idols. You might be as free to do that as you please. But in doing that, if it causes your brother to stumble, you've missed the prize. And it's the prize that a man is to go after, not his freedom. Second thing it involves is, running the, is, is playing by the rules, running by the rules. I've told you about Perry Reeves. Some of these guys hadn't heard about Perry. Well, y'all just kind of, just you know, don't worry about it over here. Let me tell these guys about Perry, these new college students. Old Perry was a guy I ran track with. 
Now, we played football, so everybody that came out football had to run track. Perry was lazy, but he loved football. But he had to run track, so he got in, and, and they put old Perry in in the mile. You know, everybody that didn't, couldn't run well, he just, they just got lumped in the mile. And we were running in Haskell, Texas. True story, whether it happened or not. We were running in Haskell, Texas. They had a track just exactly like ours over here where you, where you went down in front of the grandstands and you circled around and went behind the grandstands. And when they took off, Perry took off and got up under the grandstands first time around, just hit out under there. And these guys, all the rest of the guys running the mile, they were sweating it out and chugging around. And when they finished three laps and started around the fourth lap, came around behind the grandstands, Perry joined them. And I mean, he sprinted for 220 yards. He just led the whole pack. I mean, the coach fainted when he saw Perry. He, he, hadn't even, he didn't even notice that Perry wasn't in that pack of runners. And old Perry just sprinted through the end. Everybody was really congratulating him. And they, you know, when the rest of them came in, they started squawking. They knew that Perry had been hiding out under there. Well, he won the race, but he lost it. He won the race. I mean, he finished before everybody else did, but he didn't run by the rules. Let me tell you something. You play this life, you live this game of life within the circumference, within the boundary of certain rules. And if you win, you've got to play by the rules. Third thing it involves is that in order to, 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 to run, in order to win, there's some things you have to sacrifice. Now Hebrews chapter 12 says, lay aside every encumbrance and the sin that so easily besets us. Now what he's saying is that there is a difference between an encumbrance and the sin, and sins. You have to lay aside both. Now an encumbrance is what, he, what, is what we might refer to as the things which are good but they're not best. The sins are the things that are wrong or bad. You lay those aside. But the encumbrances are those things which may be good, but they're just not best. And what he's saying here is that in order to win the prize, you're going to have to leave some things out in your life. You're going to have to begin to exercise some priorities. It was, case, it was so in the case of these men who trained for the race. For 10 months, they went through a rigorous discipline they, 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 they practiced they, they, they continually. They ran with weights on their legs and around their waist just honing off the fat. Now, that took nerve for me to say that. Just, just honing off the, the fat. And, and, and they, they, they uh, practiced this rigid discipline with regard to what they ate. They had a dietary law you wouldn't believe. For 10 agonizing months, they gave up everything that hindered their running. Now, what they gave up wasn't itself bad. It just was an encumbrance to the running of the race. Priorities. An industrialist by the name of Dodd was asked one time, what is the hardest thing that you have to, to get people to do? He said, two things, to get them to think 
and to get them to do things in the order of their importance, priorities. I will leave everything out, even if it's good, if it's not bad in itself, I'll sacrifice that in order that I might win the prize. Are you catching on that this matter of the Christian life is something you do for all your life? You give all your life for all your life. And the application of discipline. Now look at verse 26. Therefore, I run in such a way as not without aim. My eyes on the tape. I'm not gonna look back. I'm not gonna let the, what's back there trip me up. I'm not going to look aside to the side at what others are doing, other runners who are coming. I keep my eye on the tape. I box in such a way it's not beating the air. It means to, 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 to uh, swing without hitting the target. It's not shadow boxing, really. It's like getting into the ring and just swinging without hitting anything. I, I had one little stint at boxing. I was in the I was in the second grade. They coach, the, the teacher got us out on the playground and somebody has some boxing gloves. The, the teacher thought it would just be great if we just, you know, kind of had a little boxing every now and then out there, just, you know. And, and I got my boxing gloves on. I didn't know you were supposed to, you know, kind of get up like this. I just, when the bell rang, I just went to swinging. I swung, I know I must have swung 50 times, never hit a lick, but I got beat to a pulp. That, little, that discouraged me quickly from boxing. Now, now he, he's saying, when I draw back my fist, I'm going straight to the target. Let me ask you a question. I'm as serious as I've ever been. What are the goals of your life? Young people, adults, what are, the, what are your life goals? Now, don't give me this generalities about, oh, I want to be a great Christian. I want to be a good Christian. I mean specifics. What are the goals for your life? What are the goals for your children? Student, what is your, what is your goal? What are your goals for your kids? What are your, what are your goals as parents? What are, the, what are you going after? What do you have a target that you're aiming straight to hit? In verse 27, he says, I buffet my body. The word body there means it's, it's really the face. He's saying, in essence, I'm saying I'm not going to do, I'm not going to involve myself in pleasurable indulgences. Now there's an application. I'm gonna hurry and quit. Got just about five minutes to do it. I want you to turn to 1 John chapter 2, verses 15 and 16. 1 John chapter 2 verses 15 and 16. Now we'll read it from the New American Standard and then I'm gonna read it from the Living Bible. Watch this. 1 John 15 and 16. Do not love the world, nor the things in the world. If anyone loves the world, the love of the Father is not in him. Now he describes three things, three beasts that you encounter in the arena. For all that is in the world, 
One, the lust of the flesh, the lust of the eyes, and the boastful pride of life is not from the Father, but from the world. Now, if you'll hear that from the Living Bible, it might mean a little more to you. Stop loving this evil world and all that it offers you. For when you love these things, you show that you do not really love God. For all these worldly things, one, these evil desires, the craze for sex, the ambition to buy everything that appeals to you, and the pride that comes from wealth and importance, these are not from God. And as an Old Testament context, in the Old Testament there was the pagan god Ashtoreth, the lust of the flesh. We can't get away from the fact that this is a sensual society that is preoccupied with and obsessed by sex. I have uh, a real heart break after being spending some time with some of our college students who are paying a tremendous price to walk with the Lord. What I'm understanding now is what I see with regard to the lax, the absolute um, lack of restraint with regard to sexual freedom and promiscuity. It's appalling and unbelievable. So that many young people today are so caught up in the lust of the flesh, the lust of the eyes, Baal, was the god of materialism, having to buy everything that appeals to us so that that plastic god controls us. Now there's nothing wrong with possessing things. There's something terribly wrong with things possessing us. And the boastful pride of life that comes with wealth and power, the God of Moloch, the lust for influence and praise and popularity and people who live for glory and influence and status and power. Now this is what John would say and this is what Paul would say. You're going to lose the prize unless you say no to these gods. Let's pray together. Heavenly Father, awake us and arouse us to the reality that being a Christian is a serious matter that requires sacrifice and determination and discipline and self-control and a commitment that is much deeper than a half-hearted, shallow commitment.
Lord, awake us to the realization that just going to church and giving our money is not what it's about. Because I pray in Jesus' name and for His sake. Now the invitations I'd like for you to consider tonight are these. First, to consider giving your heart and life to Jesus Christ. And that's no easy matter. He says, come after me and die. And that's, that's just about it. But to give your heart and life to Jesus. To make a commitment that is deeper than an apathy and an indifference that kind of shrugs its shoulders and says, oh well, nobody's perfect. Or maybe to join the church because you feel that God wants you in the practice of a daily Christian ministry with the church. We're not going to tarry long, so if you're coming, you come on the first stanza while we stand to sing, would you?